Suicide Zen Forgiveness, the pod that shares the stories of those affected by suicide. Lost a loved one? Attempted it yourself? Did you know that when you share a burden, the load is lightened? Come listen in with your host, Elaine Lindsay. Suicide Zen Forgiveness, the podcast, is for education only. Some of the subject matter could be triggering for those that are newly grieving or in a poor state of mental health. Please call your local suicide hotline or mental health office if you need immediate help. Hello, it's good to be back. It's Elaine Lindsay and this is Suicide Zen Forgiveness. I'm really excited to bring you my guest today because I have said a million things about this woman to a million people and they all start with empowering, powerhouse, amazing, wonderful, and someone that I have come to deeply care about because she is to me the embodiment of strength, grace, and the feminine. I'm not going to take any longer to babble away without giving you some information about our guest, Sally Anderson. And I'm just going to give you the quick lowdown. She's a world-class intuitive coach. She is a trusted confidant and advisor, a sounding board, sparring partner to the influencers. She's leading authority at the forefront of sustainable human and organizational transformation. And she says she's a coin carrier, something we might ask about. We normally talk with Sally about leadership coaching, create, uh, excuse me, co-creative leadership, equanimous leadership, and leadership development. But today we're going to talk about being human, and other things that matter to each of us as humans. So without further ado, please welcome my guest, Sally Anderson. All the way from Aotearoa, New Zealand. <laughs> I knew I wouldn't pronounce that right, so better that you said it than me. <laughs> Lovely to be here. Uh, it is wonderful to have you here. And yeah, that's pretty much the other side of the world. Um, it is the other side of the seasons, for sure. And uh, we were just actually having a quick chat. Uh, Sally says they've been having snow, and we're deep in thunderstorm season. So we'll just uh, take it for what it's worth, keeping my fingers crossed that we stay with power so we can continue today. I did introduce you as very much to do with and be and empower people in leadership, but there's an awful lot more to you. And as usual, I would like my guest to speak for herself. And why don't you give us a little bit of an idea of what's important to you and why this podcast matters. Mm. So first of all, I feel very privileged to um, have the opportunity to speak, uh, to support you and the work that you're doing. So huge acknowledgement. The God in me acknowledges the God in you for the work that you're doing. Um, where to start? Um, uh, my husband died uh, nearly two years ago uh, on August 2022. 
and I wouldn't wish that experience on my worst enemy. Um, my brother died in a car accident. My sister died of breast cancer. My father died of prostate cancer. Multiple friends died. Um, when you've had multiple deaths, you obviously view life differently. But when my husband died, it was a completely different experience. So I believe that there is an unprecedented level of grief uh, on the planet right now. Uh, there's not a person on the planet that's not experiencing some level of grief. Loss of income, loss of businesses, loss of future revenue, loss of retirement funds, loss of identity, loss of status, loss of loved ones, lot, just loss. And we in Western society are not educated on how to navigate grief um, and, you know, just going and having a sandwich and, you know, leaving uh, doesn't really deal with the aftermath of um, what it is that you have to deal with. So I've done over 40 years of healing. I have it that I have a lot to teach people uh, about grief, um, considering some of the things that we're going to be talking about today, because I've lived a life of extreme adversity. I'm alive today for a reason, um, the only reason having been a suicidal maniac for a lot of my life in my earlier years, uh, the only reason, the only reason I didn't commit suicide is that my brother died at 23 and I couldn't put my parents through another death. So the irony of his death, it was almost like he was my saviour. Um, and even though it's been nearly two years since my husband died, some of the biggest things that I've been learning uh, through that experience is you know because you can go down twenty thousand rabbit holes. It's not fair, you know. Why me? You know, da, da, da. Um, I call them rabbit holes because I don't, I've got doctorates and all the rabbit holes. So it's pointless going down any of them. Uh, and he wouldn't want me to, um, you know, be sitting around, you know, not living my fullest life. Um, so I'm learning about femininity. Uh, wearing a dress doesn't make you feminine. Um, and I've always explored. Because I've always had to operate more out of the masculine than the feminine because it was never safe to be a woman, which I'll bring context to later on. Um, I'm learning about vulnerability uh, to a new degree. I'm learning about being present in a way that I've never been. My coaching has changed. Who I am as a person has changed. My relationship with my faith has changed. My entire world turned upside down. Because who are you in your identity when you've lost your person? Uh, and he was my person. It's one of the most amazing love stories. I met him when I was 45. I'm now 58. We spent 13 years together. And um, he was uh, a racist man who married a white woman, <laughs> uh, which was very transformative. Uh, he came through all of my education. He sat at the back of every single retreat that I led. I led my own three-day co-creative leadership retreats for 10 months of the year for 10 years to C-suite. Um, and which segues nicely into um, the areas where I work and where mental health comes into that, uh, and specifically the suicidal side of things. So uh, I'm passionate about um, high-end uh, C-suite. I've been a CEO coach for over 20 years. Uh, there was a stigmatization involved with leaders at the highest level. Uh, Houston, we have a problem. Nobody's talking about it. We can't even get mental health right in the workplace, let alone at the highest level. It's unprecedented the level of pressure that these uh, leaders are under uh, post-COVID. So pre-COVID, it was very masculine, linear, traditional type of leadership landscape. Now, post-COVID, uh, they're more open to uh, new leadership modalities because 
Uh, my concern is that unless we evolve the consciousness of those who lead, we will not be able to deal with the new world problems that are on our doorstep and or coming. And unless they change the entire landscape of leadership and fast track the evolution of those who lead, uh, we're going to be in deep doo-doo. So I'm on a mission to raise awareness around the unprecedented, unacceptable level of pressure these leaders are put under, hence the reason why being a trusted advisor or aspiring partner or a sounding board and enables them to have a, a kind of like a neutral playing ground. But mental health at that level is rife at the moment. Politicians, you know, can you stop bagging the opposition? Can you educate us on your policies? Can you put some succession planning in? So we've got some viable candidates to vote for, novel concept. But again, suicide in the context of the political realm is rife because of the media. Um, and, you know, I've been character assassinated. I'm the only person on the planet. For those in the audience who are listening, uh, if you haven't watched Monica Lewinsky's TED Talk, go and watch it. It's all about shame. And if you haven't watched 15 Minutes of Shame, which is a new documentary out on Netflix, which is talking about the cancel culture on um, social media, which is, again, directly linked to suicide. Celebrities. Um, you know, can you stop going in and out of rehab? Can you actually take responsibility for showing up as a contributor to society? But again, the suicide rate within the celebrity community, um, the military, you know, the degree to which uh, our veterans, the, the, the suicide rate within returning veterans is just astronomical. So I'm a stand for my education in the military. Um, and then you have millionaires and billionaires. I believe that the... Um, biggest addiction on the planet is dissatisfaction. Most people that I've coached who are extremely wealthy um, live into not being happy. Then they literally got everything. You know, when my buffer money drops below 100 mil, I'm naked to the world. And yet um, we, they, have, they have a responsibility considering the new world problems that are on our doorstep to be far more of a, have far more of a conscience on where their money is attributed. But in this whole dissatisfaction arena, you know, there are many people, you know, most people think it's a low socioeconomic, but there are a lot of people who are filthy rich who are committing suicide. So it's across all sectors of society. Um, so I have, I rate myself as one of the best trauma coaches around. I'm a coach intuitive. I coach to cause versus symptom, dangerous woman to talk to because language is my vehicle. Um, and I believe I'm alive today for a reason to be able to share my knowledge uh, to be able to stop people hurting permanently. I totally not just agree with all that, but the numbers that I deal with back up everything you have said. Mm. It is not one strata, one demographic. It is not one, you know, small age group. It is right across the board. Nothing Nothing saves you in any demographic, no matter how much money, no matter how young, how old, how whatever. Even those that appear to be insanely happy in wonderful relationships, there are mental health issues that we just don't see. And the biggest issue that I find, and the whole reason I started this podcast is the silence, the stigma, the shame. Those three things, well, put me in a box for 47 years where I didn't tell people. I have had suicidal ideation since I was a kid. 
didn't have a name for it, didn't know what the label was. I just knew because I'm older than you. I'm 67 years old. When I was young, the line was, what, what are you saying? That's ridiculous. Do you want to be locked up? Oh, they have electrodes for that. Those were things that we lived with. And mm -hmm. there are still a lot of leaders out there that are in my age group. Mm -hmm. So much better to say nothing. And that silence then segues into um, baby bashing, baby killing, pedophilia, child trafficking, um, and the powers that be will not infiltrate that silence. So we as a society, we each individually have a responsibility to address, which I'm, I know that I have a part to play to systemic change around all of those heinous crimes attributed to our youth. The youth are our future generation. And whilst we turn a blind eye or go, well, what can I do? Um, you know, if everybody has that attitude, nothing's going to change. Yeah, that, and, that I'm just one person. Yeah, yeah. So that whole silence um, is an interesting dynamic because I've had two experiences in my life where I was silenced. And people who have experienced extreme trauma, they're unable to reconcile what happens when nobody in society wants to hear it. Because yeah. when you speak into the space, that makes them uncomfortable. It makes them resist wanting to hear the reality of what some of us have experienced, which is a crime. Absolutely. It's absolutely a crime. And it, it is so pervasive and it is so, well, right now there is, a, I do see a little hope only because this pandemic has forced people to deal with at least one or two of their emotions where people didn't do that before. Lots of us just stuffed them down, stuffed them down, sat on them forever. And now we're finding that especially, I don't know if you you see it so much, but millennials and Gen Z are so much more open to acknowledging feelings, whether they are male, female, uh, non-gendered, or somewhere in between, they as a generation seem to have a more, a deeper need to acknowledge the feelings. And I think it's a step in the right direction for us and if we let it, it will help those of us in the older generations from, you know, Gen Y and, and boomers, etc. It will give us much more impetus to join this growing horde who understand that feelings are part of this conglomeration that we call human. I'd agree to that to a point. So I spent 25 years uh, standing for eradicating teen suicide. Our kids are dying. It's not okay. Again, we're disassociated yeah. as a society to the horrendous rates of teen suicide. Yeah, yeah. So the youth, the youth that you're talking about are those as a generalization. Um, so first of all, I agree on the empowered side of things. Yeah. Right? On the disempowered side of things, <laughs> 
there are stories that I've heard. So I, for example, led a retreat. I said, give me 12 of your worst kids. And the danger with kids is that they don't talk, you know, they just grunt. Um, so as a coach intuitive, you know, the only way I can shift somebody is if they talk to me. So they're a very different demographic to coach. Um, so I wanted the worst 12 and I wouldn't allow the caseworkers or the social workers in the room, which was very controversial. I was an unknown quantity, um, but I wanted I wanted to take them through a the adult version of the course. Um, so these were kids that had been locked in rooms, um, fed like dogs. Some had been um, actually collared and lived in kennels. Um, the majority were disabled. Uh, so they were on uh, the health benefits and the main perpetrator for every kid in that room was their parents. And so they'd hike up hundreds of thousands of dollars and be the perpetrator to the, to the youth. By the time I got a hold of them, cut a very long story short, it was one of the most uh, phenomenal retreats that I've ever run uh, because of the dynamics of and how they all supported each other in their own transformation. There was one girl who was in a wheelchair uh, kind of like cerebral palsy, you know, kind of like all clammed up. And she had a little interpreter who used to walk around with her and talk on, on her behalf. She was one of the ones that had been um, basically treated like a dog, fed dog food, you know, lived in this kennel for nearly three years. Um, anyway, um, I have a process in one stage of my retreat, and it, to this day will always go down as one of the most extraordinary facilitations. Got a very long story short. The little interpreter wanted to interpret for her, and I said, no, I don't need you in this process. So I had her sit down. Everybody's watching what I'm doing. And I facilitated a conversation with her, a bit like that scene in Goodwill Hunting, where you know he, uh, where uh, Robin Williams uh, speaking to Matt Damon around, you know, it's not your fault, you know, around being abused. And so we had this window of opportunity where her eyes locked on mine, and I locked on hers, and I said, um, uh, you know, this isn't your fault, you know, um, and you're good enough. Now, the kids in the environment were kind of like acting as co-facilitators and they started yelling it. You're good enough. You know, we love you. You know, I was like, seriously, she almost like just completely straightened up, you know, yeah. became completely verbal, right? Um, you know, sat there, you know, it was almost like an unfurling, right? And... She didn't need the interpreter after that session and, you know, where we went and all the rest of it. Um, but it was landing for her that anything that had happened to her up until that point was not her fault um, and that, you know, she's got a choice to be able to take her power back and obviously being able to support and enable that to happen. Um, cut a long story short, we ended up taking those 12 youth once they'd graduated. I said, I want you to pull this three-day adult forum apart and create a five-day youth oriented, designed by youth, co-created by youth, um, you know, graffitied up by youth, all of the themes, you know, I want you to design it for youth. Um, and then, it, so it was a five month immersion with a 12 month follow through program. Um, so it's the first uh, program that is in sustainable in nature. So I'm the only documented coach on the planet who focuses on the sustainability element of personal and or professional transformation. And my difficulty in the personal and or professional development movement the majority of people who are working on their mental health are having difficulty in the ability to not only transcend to the degree that they would like and the ability to be able to sustain the change. That's where I come in. 
I've cracked the code on how to have people sustain change regardless of what it is that they've experienced in their um, history. couple of things there is our disabled communities yeah. are some of the most involved in commerce, in uh, community, and they have as much uh, zest for life and disposable income just yeah. to mention something that people don't even think about that you would think as a business owner you would go out of your way to service some of who are your best customers and yet the deaf community the blind community you know yeah. i'd love to run a retreat to the deaf community and the blind community you know what i mean absolutely absolutely and it's um it's unfortunate that we don't pay as much attention to the disabled community. And, um, you know, in essence, I am part of the disabled community. Mm. And it pains me to see some of my friends here in Canada's capital be unable to navigate our streets and sidewalks. Yep because they are not made in a way that can facilitate wheelchairs. Uh, there's a lot of stores that will stay where they are because they do not open themselves up to being accessible to everybody. And, and because of those extremities and the disabled community, the deaf community, the blind community, the suicide rates in that sector. Are exactly, exactly where I was going. And it's, it is not for lack of resources. It is not for lack of initiative. And it is not for lack of desire to be a part of that. And that too has to change. We have to, we have to see our human, the human element around us as just various different stripes of one being that all have requirements that if we fulfill, we're all going to do better. Mm -hmm. But to do that, we have to pay attention. Well, you just even look at the, uh, I'm working with a guy who is a neuroplastician, uh, a brain coach. He's done a lot of work with uh, SAS and the US Marines. We're looking at targeting high-end elite athletes. And I watched a documentary recently, and if your audience haven't seen it, go and watch it. There's an untold story uh, series on Netflix, but it's specifically the one about Marty Fish, who ousted mental health in elite tennis. M-A-R-T-Y, Fish. Um, yeah. And the stigmatization involved with him coming out. Um, he basically was in bed for two years. And... Um, all of the other elite tennis players shared their own journey of um, mental health. And I'm going, well, if it's happening in tennis, it'll be happening in golf. If it's happening in golf, it'll be happening in NFL, name a sport. And again, it's not spoken about because of the stigmatization involved. And my concern around that is I watched this documentary. And so I said to John, who's the neuroplastician, works on the brain, 
then there's me who works on you know the sustainability piece and how to recalibrate and how to not allow any external circumstance to impact your state regardless of what that circumstance is uh, the art of equanimity, the ability to be the observer of what is, not how it could have been, should have been, wanted it to be. So these players don't know how to recalibrate when the media is attacking them. They don't know how to recalibrate when the ball isn't going their way real time. And I'm going, they've got budgets for Africa, they've got coaches for Africa. And so part of what um, I'm working on with uh, John, as his name, and myself, is actually working in behind the scenes with some of these elite uh, players to actually, him on the brain, me on the default, uh, to be able to give them tools in their toolkit to be able to completely transcend and take their game to a whole new level, plus also deal with mental health and stop these athletes being in bed for two freaking years. I mean, it's just like, are you kidding me? I mean, if they, if Marty Fish was in front of myself or John, there was no way that he'd be in bed for two days, let alone two years, you know? Yeah, well, this is it, and, and it's making the tools, and by tools, I mean you and John, and even our podcast is a tool yeah. to help people be able to get past what you're dealing with. Because I know firsthand, if you stuff it down and sit on it and don't put it out there, then you can never lighten that burden. No wonder he was in bed. Mm. Burdens can be pretty weighty mm. if you don't deal with them, if you don't bring someone in to give you a little help. And, and I think that's a, a message that we don't convey enough because I know I'm not the only one who thought I had to do it all. I had mm. to fight my battles. I had to win my races. I had to go after everything. Just me, just me, me in my little bubble. Okay, that's, sorry, that's total bullshit. Mm -hmm. Okay, mm -hmm. I... I took the long road round, as I've said to you before. I think I'm a bit of a slow learner. And some of us take a little longer to get there. But the fact is, now I'm there, it's my job to bring people on and talk about these things so that we can move others forward faster. Well, first of all, I just want to acknowledge you for your wisdom because I think of the many things I could say about you, being a slow learner would not be one of them. <laughs> I saw in awe of your life apprenticeship. It's been in perfection for what it is that you're here to teach. I just wanted to speak into um, a concept that I have, which I think will help your listeners specifically around any trauma that they are dealing with. Because if the trauma isn't dealt with, then you know usually there is a one-way trip to you know having suicide ideation. Yeah. Um, and given that, uh, I mean, although I rate myself as one of the best trauma coaches around, it's not really my target market, but because I specialize in what I call your default DNA identity. So moment by moment, you're in one of two states. You're either in your power or you're in your default, your disempowered state. And we as human beings oscillate between the two. I... So most people are trying to manage their default, uh, orientate them around themselves. They're trying to master their default. In my education, I teach people to die to that level of identity. It's a physical death so that the new default becomes your empowered state and you're able to sustain it and there's no more oscillation, which is what equanimity is about. So it's very different in that regard. Um, and cracking the code, if you do not understand the nuances, which is why I'm wanting my education in the schooling system and the toolkit of every counsellor, psychotherapist on the planet, because I've cracked the code on what hinders people being able to transform 
or and or transcend to the highest potential plus knowing how to sustain it. So I want to talk about forgiveness because most people are unable to forgive. Uh, there's a difference between experiential forgiveness and intellectual forgiveness. So I've done two 60-minute documentaries. One was the highest-watched 60-minute segment of history of 60 minutes at the time where I got in front of one of my perpetrators. So just to provide context, yeah. I was abducted when I was 15 years of age by a notorious gang uh, of mobsters. Uh, I was taken to a location, thrown onto a butcher's block, uh, raped from every orifice for 12 hours by more than 100 gang members and left for dead, with, which was my out-of-body experience because I had to exit my body to be able to deal with the abuse. I was then thrown onto the back of a car. Uh, the rapes continued for two and a half hours once we got to the location. The rapes continued once we got there until I lost consciousness. I was found by the head of the mobster outfit why he drove me two and a half hours back and dropped me on the side of the road. I have no idea, but I'm alive today for that reason. In the early 80s, there was no support for the victim. So uh, by the police, the way I was treated was horrendous. Uh, by the medical fraternity was horrendous. And my parents didn't know how to deal with it. What do you say to your 15-year-old daughter? So go back to school, act like it didn't happen. So I didn't need to do a psych degree um, because I lived it. Uh, when you've died and come back of your own accord, you kind of like learn a few things. When you've gone beyond the comprehension of human terror and come back, you kind of like learn a few things. So where I operate from consciously is very different from most. And every person that I sit in front of, there's not many shoes I sit in front of where I don't have an integral understanding of dysfunction because I've lived at the extreme end of psychosis, of body dysmorphia, of every addiction to the extreme, of vicious inner critic 24-7, high volume, couldn't turn it off. So I ended up being a course junkie for 20, 25 years. A lot of that was with suicidal ideation. Um, but again, I couldn't commit suicide because of my brother. Um, but I want to talk about this forgiveness thing. So the reason why I did the 60-minute documentary is that I got in front of one of my perpetrators. Yeah. So in my observation, in 30 years of being in the leadership trenches, 22 years of being in private practice, um, most people... Not that they'd know it, but they they their level of forgiveness is what I call intellectual forgiveness. Because 90% of the focus is on the event, the perpetrator, or the happening, and maybe 10% themselves, which is why they will never get beyond and be able to put the trauma behind them. Because all of the focus is on the event, the perpetrator, and the happening. And they'll say, oh, I've forgiven them. But they're talking it. It's not, you know, because you know when you've forgiven somebody, when it doesn't impact you at all. You know, yeah. you know when you're completely healed when it doesn't have an impact at all. Uh, experiential forgiveness is where the event, the perpetrator, and the happening, 10%, because you can't do jack shit about that. It happened. Zero. 90% of the focus needs to be on you to get present to the cost of becoming your own worst perpetrator for what you do to yourself. Because I became my own worst perpetrator, worse than the mongrel mob, seriously. Um, for nearly a good 25 years. I was even more heinously worse than they treated me, if that was possible, right? And so, um, you know, it's pretty unorthodox when you're facilitating a conversation with somebody around, you know, um, child abuse, because we are our own, we are our own child abusers to ourselves. You know, little Sally did nothing wrong, yet I beat the crap out of her for a good 30 odd years, you know? Oh, yeah. I teach people, I'm wanting mastery of the inner critic in the schooling system. You just, if you were to just introduce that, mastery of the inner critic, yes. you never hear that voice ever again. I can talk to a four-year-old child who's got a heinous inner critic at four and a 49-year-old client who's had it for four decades, um, 4.5 decades. And, but, 
let's not talk about it. Everybody has one. It annihilates human potential, and we don't have that in the schooling system. It would change the human psyche as we know it. And that inner critic is part of the suicide dynamic because people don't know how to navigate it. Putting a rubber band on your wrist, no disrespect. Are you not under enough pain without inflicting more pain as a strategy for your frigging inner critic? It's just crazy. There's a lot of crazy tools and, you know, recommendations yeah. out there in the so-called. So, you know, psychotherapy, that is a long process and a deep process. And, at, you know, there's a time for it. Uh, counseling is a shallow pro I'm talking about the dysfunctional aspect of counseling where somebody's yeah. gone to a counselor for 15, 20 years dragging out the privilege. That is a shallow process and a long process. The rah rah seminars are actually designed to keep you going back. That is a short process and a shallow process. So, where I position my education, people want results and they want to know how to sustain it. So, that's a deep process, but a short process. Because I like attracting people who've done everything. The Anthony Robbins, the avatars, the landmarks, the, the leadership retreats, the management retreats. But for whatever reason, they haven't achieved the level of transformation that they've wanted, nor do they know how to sustain it. And my frustration is that I have a solution to stopping people hurting permanently. At the moment, it is an 80-20 rule with the pharmaceutical firms. I don't buy into ADHD, PTSD, depression in the way that society accepts it. That's another whole conversation another time. Mm -hmm. uh, That's discrediting the... Um, the um, serious nature of those that do but yeah. what my issue is is where the only course of action is dependency on drugs so i've got a non-drug related solution to most of their mental health illness um i say there's about 20 percent where it's chemical imbalance where drugs are warranted but 80 percent of its mindset um so a non-drug related solution that not only transcends your past but also teaches you how to sustain it is in my world revolutionary Absolutely. Ah, yes, 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 yes. I cannot, I cannot possibly agree with you more. Um, and and I I speak from long, excessive abuse of narcotics. As a functional junkie, I can say yes, that is not the way to go. Pharmaceuticals, um, they just kind of keep you where you are but keep you from talking about it. That's <laughs> what it amounts to. So, yeah, not let's not change the education system yeah. because people will become more aware. The good thing, as you said, with COVID is that people awakened and started questioning. Yeah. And so if we don't change the schooling system and if we don't stop the chaos that's occurring with the, what's happening with the pharmaceutical, an example, the weight loss industry is a trillion-dollar industry. Oh it is God. not interested in sustainable solutions. They want to keep yeah. the dysfunction in place. Yeah. Well, yeah, if you can't sell your drugs, you can't get filthy rich. Yep. And it, to me, it's also about normalizing the conversation about, you said the inner critic, but also about suicidal ideation. It can happen to children. But we can't fix what we don't acknowledge. And we don't talk about suicide, ever. We, don't, we also don't talk about death. So, no. In my, third, in my third book, The Power of Grief, looking at the empowered aspect of grief, I want to talk about, because uh, you've got to deal with what is. Yeah. You know, if you've had an event, a perpetrator or happening, you've got to deal with what is, not how it could have been, should have been, wanted it to be, because that's where the resistance and or the suffering and or all of human suffering is a function of what we make things mean. It's never yeah. about the event. Do you know that in 10 years of facilitating high-end retreats, 
that the number one belief was that they don't deserve to live. These are yeah. very high-functioning, highly successful people. Yeah. Um, that, to me, was mind-blowing. Um, but in the context of the, the case studies and stuff that we did, um, the <laughs> silence... The, the silence is rife around what people are dealing with. The external, you know, they look as though they're all together and all the rest of it. And then, you know, seeing the carnage that, that is created, you know, in behind the scenes, um, you know, you can have as much money as you like. You, you can't find security in bricks and mortar. You can't find it in a bank balance. You can't find it in a relationship. You can only find security in your faith. And ironically, every single organization on the planet has human beings in it. And faith isn't one of the number one strategies. Love isn't the number one strategy. Healing isn't the number one strategy. We've got a lot of little boys, little girls running businesses, economies, and countries, yeah. um, and they haven't done the deep work, you know? And most of them are unable to navigate uncertainty because they're used to being in control. So the world is, the landscape is completely changing on how we function as human beings. And to me, it starts and ends with the education system. Changing the way counseling and yes. psychotherapy is done. Don't even get on that subject, you know? <laughs> Absolutely. And it was for the longest time. Oh, don't talk about it. Then they won't think about it. And then it'll be fine. And the fact is, okay, none of that is true. But when we lose someone, we actually need to talk about it. In order to process our grief, we have to be able to acknowledge whether that's for a short time or a long time will depend on how fully you acknowledge that. And the fact is, when we lose someone, a lot of our grief is because they've left us behind. It's not just that they've gone. And, and acknowledging that, that selfish part of grief is what everybody shies away from. We don't acknowledge that there are pieces of us that focus on us. Let's face it, okay? You, you, you're with you 24-7. You've got to focus on your feelings. And we're saying that to people now, focus on your feelings and do all this. Well, guess what? Some of those feelings, they're not great. They don't involve others. They're very self-involved. They're very much about you. And guess what? You need to deal with them too. Yep. But the difficulty is, and what I experience in leadership, is can you just come in and fix my people, but don't look at me, yeah? Yeah. And yeah. in those retreats that I ran for 10 months of the year for 10 years, those, the thing that fascinated me, those that were the most dysfunctional had really experienced bugger all trauma. Yeah. Those that had experienced, which makes my story fade into insignificancy, um, some of the most horrendous stories you could ever, you know, just massive trauma, we're more functional. So yeah. it's never about the happening. It's always about what you make the happening mean. And I've always said that your story does not define who you are, but it is your backbone of your character and how you show up in the world. Yeah. Yeah. It's what you do next. Yeah. To me. I, I'm always, I've learned that I, I do want to live in the moment because it really is all I have. But it is what I do next that defines who I become. 
most people, this is a generalization, but most human beings, if we're human, um, this isn't it yet. There's somewhere else to get. When I get there, it's going to be better than here in that place called there. Where is that place called there? Because there's only the now moment and you're never here. And the irony is dissatisfaction, seriously, is the biggest addiction. Yep. Because people think that happiness lies in some future elusive environment. Happiness is a choice. If you're not happy now, regardless. So I train people to be a 10 every day. 10 is the best version of yourself. And how do you sustain being a 10 all the time, regardless of circumstance? <laughs> Most people don't even know what a 10 would look like, you know, in the context of, you know, themselves. So when I'm at a supermarket, somebody comes up to me and go, how are you going? I said, I'm absolutely extraordinary. And they go, what happened? I go, nothing. I just choose it. Yeah. Because if you're hanging out at a two, you're attracting two experiences. We are vibration, we are energy, we are resonance. And it's with immediacy. Language creates the reality of our world. If, if you don't change your language, you are the cause of creating the carnage. And most people think life's doing it to them, not realizing that they're stinking, thinking monkey mind and where their thoughts are focused. So the mantra I live by every day is what you are thinking, forwarding your game. If it's not, don't think it. Is what you're saying forwarding the game? If it's not, don't say it. Is what you're doing forwarding your game? If it's not, don't do it. And who you're being on a day-to-day -day basis, is that forwarding your game? How on earth are you expected to forward your game? First of all, you've got to know what your game is. How are you expected to forward it if you don't train your thoughts on what you think, do, say, and be on a 24-hour period? Now, that takes practice. It has you live at a very high degree of integrity. But it has you die to your default level of identity because... You're not oscillating. Oh, yeah. Oh, that that is excellent. And and I know, I know that um, that you know I, I told the story before in in 1997 when I was hit by a car for the third time. <laughs> told you I was a slow learner. The the gentleman who hit me, the road rage man who ran down the grandma, I actually became so grateful because he showed me the common denominator. And if you are angry and you put out crap and you yep. feel like a victim, yep. guess what? Yep. You are. Yep. And waking up to realizing that I could be grateful for everything. As my dad says, he's on the right side of the grass when he wakes up in the morning. <laughs> everything above that is a bonus. So and when you get to that, I didn't, I didn't know enough. I hadn't read enough back then, but I started writing out gratitudes every yeah. day. Yeah. And just that changed what I saw, changed what I looked at and for. And I started realizing, oh my God, all these people are so nice. People are wonderful. And this is wonderful. And in my head, that little inner critic said, what the hell is wrong with you? What do you mean they're wonderful? It's like they are. And I became stronger than that voice. The book I'd recommend to your listeners is called The Magic uh, by Rhonda Bryn. Uh, 28 uh, Principles for Gratitude. One of the best books for gratitude on the planet right now. It's just outstanding. So I couldn't agree with you more. Um the thing I just want to speak into is where people get to relinquish responsibility for showing up in their awesomeness and the distinction between wanting something versus being committed to something. I want to stop feeling suicidal. I want to stop feeling, um, you know, um, lousy. I want to stop feeling unhappy. You know, I get you want it, but there's a difference between wanting it and being committed to it. 
So these are the five stock standard human relinquishment buckets. I don't have enough time. I don't have enough energy. I don't have enough money. I don't know how. And manifesting illness to abdicate responsibility for showing up. Now, somebody who's committed will find the time. Somebody who's committed will find the energy. Somebody who's committed will find the money. Somebody who's committed will work out the how. And somebody who's committed will, will look after their well-being such that they don't manifest an illness off the back of their stinking thinking. Um, so I work a lot with humans around the distinction between wanting something versus being committed to something. And if you look at two tennis courts, there's a tennis court called want and a tennis court called committed. Most people are playing on the tennis court called want, wanting the results from the tennis court called committed, wondering why they're not getting it because they're two completely different courts. Absolutely. And it happens through the language. So commitment equals results. This can land like a cup of cold six. Sorry about that. But commitment equals results. Wherever the results are currently being produced in your life is a function of your current commitment. So I'll say to people, say in a retreat, um, how many of you have uh, tried to lose weight? Um, hands go up. How many of you have tried to lose weight over two, five, 10 years or plus? Hands go up. How many of you tried to transform your finances? How many of you have been doing it for two, five, or 10 years plus? How many of you live into a story that you hate it, you don't like it, you know, you're frustrated by it? I'm here to tell you, you love being fat and you love your finances being stuffed. News alert. Because where the results are being produced, which is still being overweight and your finances being stuffed, is where the results are being produced. So that must be what you are committed to from the default identity's perspective. Yeah? Until you land that, you will never transcend it. And so I'm wanting the awareness, all of my education is awareness-based training, being able to teach people I've got a particular process, it's called the default DNA blueprint, it's about seven different layers, to be able to educate every single person has an individual DNA default. So we've got individual fingerprints, we've also got an individual DNA default imprint um, that completely rules our life. But if we're not aware of it, we don't know how to take our power back and die to that identity such that we can transcend and achieve other you know, dynamics in our lives, which is why I'm wanting this process in um, you know, the toolkits of counselors and psychotherapists and so forth, because there's a lot of unhealed practitioners trying to heal unhealed people who haven't done the work themselves. And I'm not discrediting academia. Um, you know, all of my experiences have been life experiences. So I have no boundaries because I've never been formally trained in anything, which is probably why I get away with everything. My processes are quite unorthodox because I'm interested in people getting results. I'm interested in bringing simplicity to complexity. Yeah. Um, so I think, you know, the, the awareness around where your thoughts are focused and where you're relinquishing responsibility. And I've also got a bugbear with coaches who focus on, got to focus on your goal setting. You got to focus on your vision. You're good. But why aren't we also focusing on what you're tolerating, which is the undercurrent taking you in the other direction? Financial tolerations, relationship tolerations, declutter tolerations, organizational tolerations, well-being tolerations. I mean, the tolerations are rife. A toleration is a persistent complaint that you operate over the top of. So I'm very big on having as much impetus in identifying what are you tolerate? What would your life look like if you didn't tolerate anything that wasn't working? What would your life look like if your past was not in your future and that nothing from your past impacts your state? That's true healing and that you know how to sustain it. Boom, baby, boom. And therein endeth the lesson. I knew, what did I tell you? What did I tell you, folks? I told you this was going to be powerful. And I was absolutely not joking. Sally, 
I cannot thank you enough. For our audience, we will not only have the links that Sally mentions and links to find Sally where Sally lives, but we also are going to have links to the books she mentioned and anything else in there that Sally gave us a, an option to go look at. That's going to be in the transcripts as well, because I think it's incredibly important not just to talk about it, not just to give you the big stuff, but to give you access to what we can and where to go so you too can take charge of your life, which I think is incredibly important. And there were just a whole bunch more ahas there. I think I have a couple of tolerations got to deal with that <laughs> I hadn't actually thought about. Which, see, I, I'm, I love the fact that I'm always learning because I believe as long as we can choose, we can choose to do better. Mm. Mm. So with that, I say thank you ever so much, Sally. Ah, my heart is full. My head is full. My spirit is full. And mm. I so appreciate you. This is not the last time. God willing, that Sally will grace us on the show because I, I just wanted to acknowledge you for the opportunity and for any of your listeners, if they're wanting to engage in any of my services, um, LinkedIn's the best uh, vehicle. I offer a one-hour free consultation. I'm also coming to America. I'm running retreats in America. So if anybody wants to hear about those experiences uh, in Los Angeles and New Jersey and Dallas, I'd love to have a conversation with you. And uh, as I said before, the God in me acknowledges the God in you. And I'm very grateful for the opportunity today. And, and that too will be in the transcript. So you'll be able to know where Sally will be. I'm hoping that I get to meet up with Sally in one of those places because she's a little bit far away and it's been a hot moment since we've met. And I think it's about time we got to meet each other in person. That'd be amazing. Amazing. Absolutely. On that note, I'm Elaine Lindsay. This is Suicide Zen Forgiveness. I hope you found the gifts today that I have found within what our guest has had to offer. Sally, once again, I say thank you so much. Audience, remember, make the very best of your today every day. And I will see you next time. Thank you for listening. Please subscribe on your favorite service. Suicide Zen Forgiveness was brought to you by Truel Social Media, the digital integration specialists. Let them get you on page one in the search results. And also by Canada's keynote humorist, Judy Kroon, motivational speaker, comedian, author, and stand-up coach at Second City. On the stage, Judy draws from her wealth of performance experience, wit, and insight to entertain, inform, and inspire in her dynamic keynotes and half-day workshops.